Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 as we've been taking a look for the last several weeks at the first 18 verses of this chapter. They really focus on the heart issues, the motives of our heart as we perform our religious duties. I've been calling this section doing the right thing for the right reason. I think last week I called it doing the right thing for the wrong reason, but for whatever reason, uh, the Lord wants us to examine our hearts before Him as we engage in things, as He says here, such as giving or fasting or praying. And embedded in this section is uh, a deeper section, if you will, a, a deeper point of instruction on prayer. In verses 9 through 15, we have what we often call the Lord's Prayer, or we might better call it the model prayer. It's something that Jesus adds to this section that sort of uh, goes beyond the issue of motivation and deals with the proper, uh, if you will, content, form of prayer. It's really a model to help us to know how we ought to pray. And it isn't necessarily inclusive of everything. There are things here that you don't necessarily find that might be included in other prayers. Jesus, for example, told us at the end of the Beatitudes to pray for our enemies, and there's no mention here of our enemies. We've told, we're told to be thankful at all times, and there's no explicit statement of thanksgiving here. Now, this, is, this is not an all-inclusive prayer, nor is it a nor is it a prayer to be recited verbatim. As a matter of fact, this prayer is given a couple of times in Jesus' ministry as you look through the various Gospels, and at no time is it given in exact duplicate form. There are small variations, whether it's in Luke's Gospel or portions in Mark or here in Matthew. And all of that tells us that what we have here is not supposed to be something recited word for word, but it's a paradigm. It's a model, or, or we might say a roadmap, and some, something intended to help us know how to pray. And we have to admit it's very helpful because it's not always easy to pray. We all have struggles in that area. We find ourselves at times not knowing quite how to pray or whether we're praying the right way, or whether God even hears our prayers, whether the efforts that we're putting in are pleasing to Him or not pleasing to Him. We can feel a little bit lost in prayer. Even when we go to pray, sometimes we find ourselves launching out into a season or a time of prayer and very quickly uh, finding our minds drifting away because they have no steady guidance. Our mind has no steady roadmap to follow. And we very quickly find ourselves at an end of knowing what to pray about or how to pray. Our prayer life can be frustrated. It can be encumbered. It can feel at times like an empty routine. And if we're honest, it can feel like a very boring time. We're bored with the thought of prayer. We're bored with the thought of, of asking. We're bored maybe even with the thought of God. Or we might feel at times 
unworthy to pray. Times when we need it the most are the times when we feel most disconnected from God. Most unwelcome by God, maybe even under God's judgment, under God's discipline. Or we know that we've not been faithful in a matter with the Lord. We've not been obedient in a matter with the Lord and it's, it's bothering us, but we're not certain that he's even going to welcome us, that he even knows the way that we feel, the conflicts that we have in our heart. Or we're just hindered by discouragement or by doubt. We've waited We've been patient, we've been asking for the Lord's hand and deliverance, and we have just seemingly run out of fuel. We've asked over and over again, we begin to wonder whether or not it's even making a difference, whether or not it is even something the Lord desires us to continue to do, or whether He just wants us to drop the matter because it's not pleasing to Him that we would ask Him over and over again for the same thing. And all those things kind of lead us to a deficient prayer life. We find ourselves drawing back from prayer, praying less and less, or praying maybe just over our meals, if that. Saying a quick prayer here and there, but no concerted, deep, meaningful communion with God. Well, if you have any of those kinds of experiences, if you have any others that, that have been an obstruction to your prayer, this is a section for you. It is born out of the life of a man who knew prayer. Jesus, we're told, spent tremendous amounts of time in prayer. His ministry was brief, But he habitually rose, as he must have done throughout his life during that period of time, day after day, going out, we're told, early in the morning, often before daybreak, to commune with God. And in the evening, we're told, sometimes he would frequently go out to the Mount of Olives to some quiet spot to be alone to pray. This wouldn't have been missed by his disciples, who who no doubt observed this in his life over and over again. And as a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 11, we're told that one of the disciples, an unnamed disciple, having seen this in the life of our Savior, asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And this is exactly the way he responds with this model prayer. They had to be amazed at his consistency and his zeal. They saw in him the kind of prayer life that they aspired to. They wanted to know what was behind it. What kept him going? How was he able to sustain such a prayer life? They wanted to know the secret of prayer from the one who was the master of prayer. Well, here in Matthew 6, Jesus gives us essentially the same answer he gave in Luke 11. He gives us this this sort of paradigm of how to pray. 
In this situation, it comes not as a, a response to a question from the disciples, but as a corrective to what he's already said about vain prayers, about meaningless and useless, useless prayers. You remember uh, back in verse 5, he talked about praying not like the hypocrites who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners that they could be seen by others. Or in verse 7, not heaping up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. So this is kind of offered uh, as a corrective against all those people who have these false notions of prayer that essentially lead to vain and meaningless and empty prayer, vain repetitions, many words, but not really accomplishing anything. It's a corrective to the idea that God accepts or is any way uh, uh, given over to those kinds of meaningless repetition and enunciation of words. Jesus is correcting the idea that God would be happy with our prayers if we simply mouth them. And with no serious thought to the meaning and the content of what we're saying. This is essentially what the pagans did. This is the way that they prayed. And Jesus is telling us that kind of prayer is vain. It is useless. It is meaningless prayer. It accomplishes nothing. If you remember from that uh, a few weeks ago when we looked at that passage, Jesus notes in verse 8 that prayer is not about informing God, communicating to God so much your needs As he said, God already knows what you need before you ask him. He knows everything you're going to ask. He knows everything that you're going to tell him. He knows everything that you need. Prayer is not so much about informing God as it is reminding ourselves. What is necessary is not to inform God's mind of our needs, but to inform our minds of his sufficiency. We need prayers really to remind us about God, remind us about our relationship to God. We pray then to express our belief. We pray to express our trust. We pray to express who God is and what we believe about Him in a way that deeply engages our own heart and mind about those truths. As I said a few weeks ago, you tell your wife uh, on a daily basis, I hope that you love her, not necessarily because she needs the information, but because she needs to be reminded that you still know. And so we're reminding God on a daily basis that we still know about Him, that we still believe the same things about Him, that we still trust in the same truths that we've learned about Him. We commune with God in prayer, not because God has forgotten our needs, Not to remind Him, but to remind ourselves of what we know, or at least to express to Him that we've not forgotten those things. This model prayer aims at all of those things. It really helps us to understand the kind of prayer that pleases God. The kind of prayer that pleases God, as well as the kind of prayer that that spurs the believer on to faithful communion with God. 
It's meant to help, help us understand what meaningful and rich and true and proper content in prayer looks like to God. This is what Jesus says in verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. This is a model prayer. It provides really several elements that ought to be a part of every prayer. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to really take our time to think carefully, to think deeply about this prayer and about our own prayers in light of it. And as we go through that, I think we're going to find a number of elements that ought to shape our prayers, a number of elements that ought to shape our prayers as we approach God. The first one, the first of those elements that we'll look at this morning is what we'll call relationship. Relationship. When we address God as our Father in heaven, what we're essentially doing is framing up our relationship, the nature of our relationship to God. Jesus isn't describing some sort of, sort of polite etiquette or official title that has to always be at the head of every prayer, but he's giving us what would have been a shocking statement of personal relationship in his own day, our Father. And by the way, since Jesus was teaching probably not to Greeks and not speaking in Greek, he was probably speaking in the local dialect of Aramaic. He no doubt used the word Abba, which would have been the word for father. It's a kind of a childish, or I shouldn't say childish, but an address that a child would use when he calls his father Abba, maybe something similar to, in many languages, the word Papa. Early church fathers unanimously testified that the word Abba was used by small children to address their father. Theodoret of Antioch, who grew up himself speaking Aramaic as his native tongue, affirmed this. That this was the equivalent of what we might, in our own language today, refer to as dad or daddy. It's an intimate level of communication that communicates our connectedness to God. This was virtually unheard of prior to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there are references to God in sort of a, uh, an overall sense, uh, not in a personal sense, but a sort of in a corporate sense always in the third person, always in more of a distant kind of a way. But once you come to the New Testament, you hear Jesus praying to God and using this term Father, even on occasions specifically using the word Abba. 
as, a, as an, an, an intimation of familiarity and tenderness and affection and closeness. We would even say kind of, a kind of confidence. My wife, my wife told me uh, that growing up, she had an uncle who was a, uh, a pastor and uh, that she knew of in that sort of a, a way and was always a little bit intimidated by him, even though he was an uncle, I guess because of his role and kind of his, his, his persona and was talking to her cousin one time about this. And, and the cousin just sort of chuckled that anyone would ever think of her dad as this sort of unapproachable person. Why? Because it's her dad. Because of the familiarity. The, 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 kind of, uh, the kind of comfort level, the kind of tenderness and affection that she knew from this person. This is exactly what Jesus communicates with this language. Not some sort of distant and intimidating personality, but the tender affection of a loving father. Now, throughout the pagan world, this would have been unheard of. Pagans worshiped their gods not through some sort of personal relationship, but through some sort of fearful, uh, contractual relationship of superstition. Pagans essentially are superstitious people who are constantly haggling and, and bargaining with some sort of trade partner uh, as if God could be satisfied by the meager things that you peddle His way and He would give you blessings in exchange for that. But they couldn't really conceive of having a personal relationship with God. They didn't even know the God that they worshipped. Even among the Jews, the Scripture says, Jesus says that they didn't know their God. They didn't have a sense of personal relationship to their God. God was distant to them. He was remote. He was a, a, a personality that you spoke about, but you didn't relate to. It even comes through in their writing. They, you know, wouldn't even pronounce the name of God. They were so sort of uh, superstitious about pronouncing His name and maybe committing blasphemy. They wouldn't speak the name Yahweh. And so they used the more generic word Adonai, which we translate Lord, but even at times, or many times, they just use the very generic word for God, Elohim. But they would never think about calling God Abba. And yet when Jesus arrives on the scene, this is exactly the way he begins referring to God. Father. In fact, in every recorded prayer that Jesus gave... He refers to God as Father, with the exception of His cry from the cross. Now, none of this is shocking to you and me, because if in fact the Jews and other pagan people perhaps overemphasize the sort of exalted nature or distant nature or whatever of God, we almost have the opposite problem. We live in a culture that has over 
over-familiarize themselves, or I should say overly emphasize the familiarity with God, overemphasize the nearness of God, even to the point that we might say they trivialize God. It's all about presenting God as this sort of warm and uh, personal uh, individual. So much so that his exalted transcendence disappears. Listen to the songs that are produced about God today. We joke about them as being almost indistinguishable from our love songs for our sweetie. Because we've overemphasized this sort of warm personal relationship with God. We've lost touch with His transcendence. But the reality is, proper prayer has to keep both of those perspectives clearly in mind. And Jesus clearly teaches it here. Our Father in heaven, that is intimacy, hallowed be your name, that is transcendence. Prayer has to contemplate the transcendence of God even as it recognizes the intimacy with God. God is a a, a being whose character is above and beyond the world. It's beyond the world in power. It's beyond the world in holiness. He's beyond the world in goodness. His character is beyond all of those things that we would ever encounter in this world. He is the divine other. He is, he is different from anything that you know or see or could interact with on this earth. He transcends all the world and all that characterizes the world. As we'll see more when we get into that section next week. This is absolutely essential that we pray with that in our minds. Because to pray without a transcendent view of God is to pray to a God who's not worthy of your adoration. It's to pray to a God who can't really do anything about your problems. Or He's too weak to respond. Or He's too flawed to care or to hear. Which is often the... The side effect, it's the result of a culture that has tried to make God too familiar, uh, who has tried to identify too closely with God so that he becomes like a fickle friend, someone who can't be relied on, someone who just simply disappoints you over and over again so that you get tired of them. People have trained themselves to think of God's nearness and closeness without contemplating His transcendence and they're no longer gripped by His impeccable character and His flawless wisdom and His profound goodness and His inexhaustible grace, not to mention His absolute power. But these aspects of God's character are the things that are at the heart of every great prayer. They're at the heart of a profound prayer life. This kind of focus on the character and nature of God. And you see it modeled in many biblical examples. Devoted prayer either begins with a significant portion or is completely consumed with the reciting of God's character. Daniel in his great prayer in Daniel 9, one of the great prayers you'll ever read 
He begins, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, he says. And he just goes on and on with this focus on God, on his faithfulness, especially in light of Israel's unfaithfulness. Or Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 32, prays to the Lord for understanding, but his prayer is much more consumed with the character of God rather than just simple, a re, a simply a request for understanding. He says in verse 16, I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands But you repay the guilt of fathers to the children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is Lord of hosts, great in counsel, mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of men, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You showed signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel among all mankind. You've made, you, your, uh, you've made a name for yourself as it is even to this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them into this land which you swore to your fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey and they entered and took possession of it. And they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. There's not not a request anywhere in there. He's not asking God anything. He's just telling God, this is who you are. This is what you do. This is what you've done. And he goes on in verse 24, what you spoke has come to pass and behold, you see it yet, O Lord God, you have said to me, buy a field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of Chaldeans. That's as close as you get to a request right there in the whole prayer. The Lord had commanded Jeremiah when the city was under siege by the Babylonians to inexplicably go out and, and um, uh, buy a plot of land. Well, everyone thought this place is going to be destroyed. It made absolutely no economic sense, but it was a sign of confidence that God would deliver. But Jeremiah was trying to make sense of it all. Trying to understand God's command to him inexplicable command to him in the face of the circumstances and essentially it led to a prayer which was a contrast of God's unfailing character against the seemingly hopeless situation of his circumstances that's what profound prayer sounds like it's consumed with God not with you The purpose, as I said, is not primarily to let God know of your needs. It's to remember Him. To know Him more. Not just reciting of request. 
If anything, it should be consumed with the reciting of his character. Now, the moment you begin to emphasize that in your prayers or even your music, your worship, you begin talking about the need to exalt God's character, exalt his majesty, exalt his holiness, exalt his greatness. People get worried. They get worried that somehow you're going to fall into some sort of cold-hearted worship of a distant God. That you would make God unapproachable. This is, in fact, an unnecessary fear. And if you ever really want to understand in a profound way, the truth of calling God your Father. Nothing could better prepare you for the richness in that address than to cultivate an understanding of His transcendence. To remember who it is who is so exalted That you have the privilege of calling your father. D.A. Carson says many modern Christians find it difficult to delight in the privilege of addressing the sovereign of the universe as father. Because they've lost the heritage that emphasizes his transcendence. In other words, our understanding of the nearness and Tenderness of God as Father is deepened by our understanding of the exalted character of God. The more you see God highly exalted, the more you're going to cherish the delight of calling Him Father. Now, Jesus understood both of these truths. He understood the importance of hallowing God's name, and He also understood uh, that we could approach Him as a true loving Father. And he taught his disciples this, and this gripped them. It gripped them. Paul emphasizes it in Romans 8. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me over at Romans 8 for a second. It's one of the passages that most sort of emphasizes this for us. Romans 8, 14. Paul says here in Romans 8, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words... When we receive the Spirit of God, we become His children, and that father-child relationship brings with it a sense of closeness, and it ought to bring with it a sense of confidence in prayer so that we can cry, Abba, Father, and this is what God intends for us. Not that our relationship would continue on in some sort of enslavement to fear over Him, some sort of enslavement to intimidation. But, but our understanding of ourselves as adopted as sons and daughters would leave no fear in approaching God, 
but only confident assurance that his love for us will be as unfailing as that of a parent for a child. And that we would pray with that same kind of assurance. God hasn't welcomed you as sort of some temporary guest. He isn't taken you in as just maybe a refugee ready to be kicked out once you've overstayed your welcome. You have been received and entitled to sonship by adoption when you receive His Spirit. Adopted into His family with all the rights and privileges, all the legal privileges of Christ Himself, as Paul goes on to explain. And this is where you stand. This is your status. It's something that was accomplished not because of you and not because of the way you performed and it won't be sustained and it won't be maintained by the way that you perform. It is accomplished by the work of Christ. And you may not always feel like a son or a daughter. You may, in fact, sometimes feel like a slave Sometimes that's how we feel when we approach God. Even when we approach Him in prayer, we can be overwhelmed by a sense that we're not wanted or overwhelmed by a sense that we don't belong or we have no claim or we have no right. Kind of like the prodigal son. You remember in Luke 15, he comes back to the father and he says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as your slave. I'm not entitled to anything. Certainly the way that we can sometimes feel, especially when we're looking at things in our life, circumstances in our life that would appear to say that no one's on our side, not even God. But you remember the words there in Luke 15 by the Father. Bring the best robe and put it on my son. Shoes for his feet and a ring. He's entitled to all that my son is entitled to. doesn't matter what the background is. You might be saying, I don't deserve anything from you, which in your own merit that would be true, but in the merit of Christ, you're entitled to all that God has given his sons. And so in Romans 8, Paul is telling us, God sends His Spirit into our hearts and confirms to us this adoption. In fact, verse 16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And it's by the Spirit then that we cry, Abba, Father. Paul uses the same language in Galatians 4. Because we're sons, he says, God has sent his, the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So this is the Spirit of Christ who's come within us and, and with the same sort of voice that Christ would lift, the same sort of cry that would come from His voice, we're crying out to God with that same connectedness, that same relationship. And all of this because of the work of Christ. And so Paul's point in Romans 8 is to remind us not only that this adoption is legal, but also that it's relational. It's not like you just have a piece of paper that gives you some sort of official verification, but God actually looks at you as his own son or daughter, and you look upon God as your father, so much so that your spirit naturally cries out to him with this 
familiar term, term, Abba. In fact, it's interesting language Paul uses here. He combines the Aramaic word Abba with the Greek word pater, the word for father, so that it comes together as Abba, father, which is a little unusual. Uh, It's repeating the same word, father, father, just in two different languages. It's an odd way, you might think, to address God. The only other time that is found in Scripture is actually Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark 14, he said, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me. Paul was probably thinking of those very words as he thought about the agonies that you and I go through, the sufferings that we go through. As a matter of fact, this whole chapter, Romans 8, is filled with language of sufferings. He talks about sufferings back in verse 18 and eventually down in verse 26, how when we're in the midst of suffering, we don't even know how we ought to pray. And the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses with groanings that are too deep with words for words. He, he just pictures us in these perplexing times and not sure how we are to pray, but he wants to remind us that during those times, Jesus himself cried out, Abba, Father. During a time when he would have been tempted to feel that God was abandoning him, he clung to that sense of nearness and that sense of affection from God. Crying out, the word krasane, which is usually associated with distress when you find it in Scripture. And Paul is assuring us that even in those times of distress, when your circumstances may tempt you to think God has abandoned you, cast you aside as his son or daughter, in those times, we can rely on the most basic impulse to cry out, Abba, Father. This is the kind of closeness that has been implanted in our hearts that we can rejoice in. A sense in those times when we are struggling on the, in the, the, the external man that we can connect with God on this relational, familiar, and intimate level. So this is the way prayer begins. Jesus says, with a reflection on this relationship you have with God, He is your heavenly Father. And by the Spirit, we are His adopted children. We reflect on that deep, deep closeness and affection, and yet we hallow His profoundly transcendent character and name which we'll get to next week I want to say a word to you this morning if you're here and you don't know God that he is nothing but a distant figure to you that's all he's ever been that the language that Jesus uses here is real that God sent his son into the world to pay the price of your guilt 
to remove the penalty for your sins, to wipe all of that stuff away so that you can know God. You can be in relationship with Him. Not only now, but for all eternity. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we would plead with you that you would not leave here if you don't know God. If you'd like to know Christ, if you'd like to know God, if you'd like to have that connection with God, we encourage you, confess your sins. Acknowledge to God the penalty that you deserve. Ask His forgiveness. The Scripture says if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then give Him your life. Jesus says that he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the pathway to connection with God. And it's the pathway to true life as your maker and creator intended you to live it. If you'd like to know more about this gospel, we encourage you. And when we're done here, down the hallway to the right, we have a visitor reception. I'll be there. Others will be there. We'd love to be able to hear how the Lord is working in your life. We'd love to be able to share with you from the Word of God more how your sins can be forgiven, how you can walk with God and know Him. Stand with me, and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Our Heavenly Father, What a precious, precious truth and thought it is to know that we can call you that. And even here, gathered together as the family of God, each of us individually connect to you by the Spirit. And you know us, O God. Intimately, you know the hairs of our head, the numbers of our days. Before they even happen, you've written them in your book. And your thoughts toward us are like the sands of the sea. What a magnificent God you are. What a precious gift it is to us to know you. To be able to lean on and rely on you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to cherish that this week more than we ever have and to commune with you as our Heavenly Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.